you're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. We just sang those words a few moments ago. I qualify. I feel my need of him. We're talking about a very controversial subject in these few days. I trust that my words will be seasoned with grace. I trust that, as I say, some difficult things, perhaps, in the course of my three lectures, that somehow the wonder of who God is will be held will be held before us in a way that will make us want to bring people before Him, as opposed to simply find fault with those with whom we differ. I'm very grateful to be here for this um, couple day of conference. It's a real privilege to be sharing in the ministry of the Bethlehem Conference for Pastors, partly because of the influence that John Piper's books have had in my life. He said some kind things about me. Let me return the compliment. His books have been helpful, but the one that I think I have been most influenced by has been his little volume called The Supremacy of God in Preaching. When I first read that about a year and a half or maybe two years ago, I have since required it of all my counseling students, and I have done that for a very definite reason. I would like to see a trend reversed in the entire field of what's called Christian counseling. It seems to me that we're right to wonder whether counseling, as we know it largely in evangelical circles today, is making as much of God as needs to be made. What does it mean to honor the supremacy of God in counseling, is the question I began to consider as I read John's book on the supremacy of God in preaching. Let me tell you a little bit of where I'm coming from. I don't think you understand a preacher unless you know something about him, maybe. Let me tell you about a few things the Lord's been doing in my life as introduction to what I want to be talking to you about these few days together. Some of you perhaps know, last March 3rd, United Flight 585 from Denver to Colorado Springs never made it. It crashed. Twenty-five people were on board, four crew members and 21 passengers. My only brother was on that flight, and all 25 died that day on March 3rd. After the, after the death of my brother, I, of course, shed many, many tears, and still do on occasion. But two weeks after Bill died, on March 17th, it was a Sunday, I remember telling my wife, Honey, there are tears inside of me that I have not yet cried. You know what that means? Have you ever sensed something stirring within you? You're not sure what it is, but but it feels important. John White has a book called Changing on the Inside. Not a terribly original title in my view. In that book, he talks about repentance as sometimes a process that can be likened to an earthquake. There seems to be a collision of internal forces that begins to come about in your life, and you're not sure what's going on. But if you pay attention to what the Spirit of God might be doing in deep parts of your soul, then eventually it breaks forth in a mighty work of repentance. Well, I wasn't sure what was happening inside of me, but I knew that there were tears that had not yet been shed, but I wasn't sure their source. I knew it was something deeper, if that can be imagined, than the death of my only brother. That night, March 17th, I got up, couldn't sleep, went to my study, got my Bible, wasn't sure where to turn. And my first reaction, I can recall as I sat there in my study with my Bible on my lap, my first reaction was to feel intensely irritated with the Scriptures. Ever been there? 
Because the questions I was asking, I, I wasn't sure if God was answering. And it made me mad. And I began to think and pray about that. And somehow the tears began to come. The dam broke and the tears, the sobs, convulsive sobbing, perhaps unlike anything I've known in my 47 years, seemed to come. And I can recall just about shrieking in the presence of God at about one or two in the morning and saying, Lord, I'm aware that life is an unmanageable mess. And I can't seem to find the principles in your word to organize my life so I can get it together the way I want. And after pondering that sort of thinking for a little bit of time, my sentence, the sentence came out of my mouth that um, I doubt if I'll forget very soon. And the words were these, Lord, I know you're all that I have, but right now I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. I want to know you better. And that began, last March 17th, a new level in my intense pursuit of what it means to know, to, to, to know the Lord. And it also has triggered an intense preoccupation with whether our counseling understanding, whether our methodology, whether our theorizing, whether the kind of things that we're doing in evangelical churches really is pursuing God in an appropriate way. And I've come to wonder if uh, rather than pursuing God, we're instead using Him to solve our problems and making the resolution of our problems the great priority by which we judge whether God is being faithful at any given moment. Every Bible-believing pastor wants to know that the counseling that he himself provides and the counseling activities within his church, as well as the counseling resources to which he may refer people as congregation, are all God-centered and Christ-honoring and thoroughly biblical. We all want that. Don't you all have a bunch of questions about that? I do. I was in England a little while ago, and... Um, a counselor there said, you folks in the States are so far ahead of us in the field of counseling. Couldn't you import much of what you have to the UK? And my response was, you wouldn't want a great deal of it. And not said angrily, I hope, but said with a real concern, what is happening in counseling circles that really reflects a thoroughly biblical approach? Let me, by way of introduction to the topic of codependency, which I'll get to in a bit, but let me, by way of introduction, suggest that when I use the phrase thoroughly biblical to describe a counseling approach, I mean several things. This is all by way of introduction. Be patient as I wade through some of this material. By thoroughly biblical, I mean that counseling, among other things, number one, regards personal sin as always a more serious problem than personal woundedness. That is not to deny the severity of personal wounds and the assaults on a person's soul that come from being sinned against and abused miserably. But in every instance, there's a worse problem than whatever abuse I've suffered in my life. About a year and a half ago, a lady approached me when I was doing a seminar. And she said to me in the course of um, about an hour-long chat that we had, she said, I have a real problem. I'm here with a friend of mine who has been my counselor for the past 10 years. And as we left your seminar, a week-long seminar, as we left your seminar tonight, or last night rather, to go back to our motel room, my friend uh, uh, said to me, I, I don't want you talking to me about your problems tonight. I have all that I can handle of my own for this evening. 
The seminar has stirred up some concerns within me, and I can't handle the burdens of your life right now, so please will you leave me alone tonight? The woman who was talking to me said that I know I should be able to do that, but something inside of me felt terribly betrayed. Something inside of me felt like, has this woman ever cared about me? And I don't know if I can accept the fact that she's not here for me now because I'm a badly hurting person and I need somebody to be here for me. Can you help me deal with the fact that I know I should accept that as a reasonable request on my friend's part who has been such a faithful counselor and friend to me for the past literally ten years? In the course of conversation that she led to some degree, she told me the following two incidents, and I don't mean to, uh, as I tell you these incidents, to bring up a couple of horror stories. We all have a thousand we could share, so the purpose of this is not to shock, because I'm sure if you talk to people, you're pretty well past shock. But she said this to me. She said, um, when I was a little girl from ages five to ten, my father sold me to the landlord for rent every month. And the landlord was into satanic ritual abuse, and I spent a day every month for five years of my life, ages five to ten, being abused by this man. Sexually abused in a variety of ways, the details of which are really too horrible to mention publicly. And she said the worst of it all was when Dad would take me to the landlord and um, stop in front of his house before he would invite me to get out of, the house, out of the car and lead me to this man. He would lift me on his lap five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old girl and hold me and tell me how grateful he was for the help I was providing for the family. That was the worst part, she said. Is she wounded? Is she scarred? Does she have any trouble with her identity as a valued woman made in the image of God? Sure she does. She told me that when she was three years old, she was up in her bedroom before Christmas time with her two-year-older brother. She was three, her brother was five, and they were looking through the heating vents. There was a heating vent in the floor of her bedroom that went down. You could see through the heating vent in the ceiling of the living room through a, a heating duct that was no longer operational, and you could see what was happening in the living room below. And she said, it was before Christmas, and my brother and I were lying on the floor looking through these two vents, watching Mother and Dad wrap Christmas gifts in the living room below, and I was having a good time seeing what I was going to be getting. Well, Mother left the room, and I wasn't paying attention to Mother. I was looking at the gifts, and Mother came upstairs, and when she saw Brother and I, although Brother by this time had left, she heard, he heard Mother coming, Mother saw me lying on the floor looking at my Christmas gifts, and what she should have done, I would suggest, what would you do if you were Mother in that situation? Wouldn't you make it into a little fun time? Say, you can't peek at those gifts. I'll let you have one now, but that's all. No more peeking. Would you spank your child for that? I wouldn't girl wasn't being bad in some horribly moral, wicked sense. There wasn't a foolishness within her soul showing that required the discipline. It seems to me it should have been handled rather differently. Maybe I'm saying something wrong. We'll use that as a barometer to see just... When Mother saw me looking at the Christmas gifts below, she went into a psychotic evil rage, I'm not sure how to describe it, yanked off the heating vent and stuffed me into the heating duct below and left me there for three days. Was she scarred? What on earth do I mean when I say that all counseling that's thoroughly biblical regards personal sin as always a more serious problem than personal woundedness when you have wounds of that severity? What do you do, Pastor, when a woman tells you that story? 
my next sentence to her, if she told me those stories, I said, I wish your mother and father were here, I'd want to punch them. Makes me mad. You get mad? But then I said something else. I said, tell me, tell me about your worship. Her whole mood changed. She looked at me viciously and said, I don't worship, I can't. Why not? The first time I ever remember praying was when I was in that heating duct for three days and I prayed God would let me die. He failed to let me die. He didn't answer my prayers. And now I have a case against him. What's your deepest problem? All counseling that's thoroughly biblical, I would suggest, regards personal sin defined very deeply. An energy a rage against God as a far more serious problem than personal woundedness. And we must not say that in a way that makes us insensitive to the legitimate hurts of people. Secondly, I would suggest that thoroughly biblical counseling is counseling that recognizes that finding God to both enjoy and serve Him is a very different enterprise than using God to resolve our problems and relieve our pain. Thoroughly biblical counseling recognizes that finding God to both enjoy and serve Him is a very different enterprise than using God to resolve our problems and to relieve our pain. And even when the higher power is identified as Christ, the mood so often still is that God is useful and therefore to be worshipped. And that strikes me as a problem. I remember years ago, a man came to see me. He was in my calendar. I didn't know him when I was in private practice as a clinical psychologist in South Florida. And um, went out to greet him, brought him back in the office for my first counseling appointment. How can I help you, I said. And the man said to me, his opening sentence, his opening sentence was this, I want to feel better quick. And I said, let me get this straight. You want to feel better quick. That's what you're asking me to help you with. He said, yes. And I said, I recommend you get a case of your favorite alcoholic beverage. Some immoral women go to the Bahamas for a month. And he said to me, are you a Christian? I said, why do you ask? He said, because your advice doesn't sound terribly biblical. And I said, the difficulty, it seems to me, is more with the question than with my advice. If what you're demanding is relief from pain as central priority and want to find some resource that on demand under your control will relieve pain, then I'm not sure if a sovereign God is your best bet. There are pleasures in sin for a season. Biblical counseling recognizes that finding God to both enjoy and serve Him is a very different enterprise than using God to resolve our problems and to relieve our pain. Thirdly, counseling that's thoroughly biblical affirms that biblical teaching provides a framework for thinking through every counseling problem and that the insights of psychology can only be catalytic to our thinking, never authoritative over our thinking. Counseling that's thoroughly biblical affirms that biblical teaching provides a framework for thinking through every counseling problem and that the insights of a psychology can never be more than catalytic 
for our thinking, never authoritative over our thinking. And if you buy that particular position, then you take issue with the integrationists who regard the Bible and secular psychology as two equal sources of authority which you merge together to form a Christian approach to counseling. By the way, that's very, very standard these days. In many counseling circles, it seems to me the Bible is thought to be, since since it is regarded as not a counseling text and does not therefore speak in the minds of many to psychological problems, we therefore must close our Bibles and open up our secular psych textbooks and use them as authoritative, being careful not not never to contradict the Scriptures, but not depending on the Scriptures. My position, my understanding of biblical counseling, is to assume that God has not written an irrelevant book and that he knows me far better than I know me, I'm too stupid to ask the right questions. Therefore, when I exegete, I must come to the the text asking what questions has God bothered to answer and to assume they're the important ones. And to assume within the framework of the questions that God has bothered to answer, all the questions that life requires me to ask will be sufficiently addressed. That's an assumption I make. By the way, that's a tough one to honor. That's a real tough one to honor. Ever counsel with a sexual abuse victim? How do you find biblical direction for counseling with a sexual abuse victim? If you look in your concordance under S or A, you don't find any material that specifically gives God's wisdom for dealing with sexual abuse. What I'm going to be suggesting, and you'll get a little flavor of it in the course of my three presentations, is I believe that biblical categories have implications that cover every question a counselor needs to ask. That's why I suggest that counseling that's thoroughly biblical affirms that biblical teaching provides a framework for thinking through every counseling problem. And insights of psychology are only catalytic, never authoritative. Fourth, I have five. Biblical counseling among other things, number four, realizes that we exist for God, he does not exist for us, and that a focus on affirming our value and setting boundaries to preserve us from assaults on our value may develop an illegitimate sense of wholeness that fails to disrupt congenital self-centeredness. Did you follow that? That's a bunch of words, isn't it? I'll say it again. Biblical counseling forth realizes that we exist for God. He does not exist for us. We exist for Him. It's the first part of my fourth point. And that when you get that reversed, and the focus becomes on affirming our value and setting boundaries to preserve us from assaults on our value, When the focus becomes affirming our value, and when we make it our priority to set boundaries that keep us from being assaulted in our sense of value, that what may develop is an illegitimate sense of wholeness that in fact does feel good. An illegitimate sense of wholeness that is illegitimate precisely because it fails to disrupt 
our congenital self-centeredness. If that woman were to tell you her story, wouldn't you want, as I want, as I think I should, to affirm that lady's value in spite of what happened to her as a child? Wouldn't you want to affirm her value and to say that the way your parents treated you is no accurate reflection of your value as an image bearer? You should never have been subjected to that kind of inhumane cruelty. God's punishment always respects the dignity of the individual. Dorothy Sayers said that God's greatest compliment to man is hell. If you want your own way, God will let you have it, and hell is the enjoyment of your own way forever. There's a dignity about it, a horror about it, but something very different than this woman, this mother, did with this lady. I would like to affirm that woman's value, but I would suggest that once you make the affirmation of value the central enterprise in your efforts to work with people, that you're in danger of promoting an illegitimate sense of wholeness where a person might learn to feel good about themselves, but may never disrupt the real problem for which the Lord had to go to the cross. Lastly, Counseling which is thoroughly biblical is counseling which assumes that God's Spirit is the agent of all change that pleases Him. Now, to put all that more briefly, everyone here, I'm sure, wants to know that all of our counseling that we endorse as church leaders honors the Bible as true and sufficient, honors the forgiveness that's available only in Christ as the basis for restorer dignity, and honors the glory of God as the central value in life. We're living in a very interesting day. As I read the trends, it seems to me in the secular world and filtering into the Christian world, there are two major movements for the Christian pastor to be concerned with. I'm sure there are many more, but there are two that have caught my attention. And the one is our topic for the, the, for the conference in terms of my presentations, and that's the codependency movement. The other is the men's movement. That's a big deal. Is that big in your areas? Robert Bly's book, Iron John, and Sam Keen's Fire in the Belly. That's a very big movement now that's getting a lot of attention, and uh, churches are beginning to ask questions about what does it mean to be a man versus a woman. Some of you know Piper and Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I recommended that book highly. My endorsement's on the book. It's an important book because it's starting to talk to us about the fact that there really is such a thing as biblical manhood, and the movement that is getting popular in secular circles is one that is infiltrating into our churches in a variety of ways in an attempt to define masculinity, in my mind, in some rather um, uncertain at best, and I think sometimes rather badly unbiblical ways. There are two movements to be concerned about, among others, in terms of the secular world infiltrating the Christian church. The codependency movement, which is my topic, and the manhood movement, which is a topic for another time, perhaps. Last summer, I had the opportunity to go to CBA, the Christian Booksellers Association. They got about 11,000 people came to that. It was a five-day conference in Orlando, Florida, and their book, their exhibition hall was about the size of four football fields, and I wandered that. A person that likes to read has quite a time wandering through four football fields of books. But the thing that disturbed me as I wandered through the, through the, um, all the displays was that the predominant bestsellers in almost all the publishing houses were books that had to do with self-help. 
recovery-type books, books on overcoming addictions, books on recovering from shame and dysfunctional families, books on setting relational boundaries, on developing intimacy and clearing and, and learning how to change from the inside out. That was there as well. And what I want us to understand is that every counseling book has a very definite theology of sanctification behind it. When we evaluate the codependency movement, we need to ask, what are, what are the presuppositions that are going on beneath the codependency movement that, that we need to identify and see whether or not they square with our understanding of the Scripture? Don't make the mistake that I think too many people make, too many pastors make, in my experience at least, to assume that somehow counseling is an enterprise that is separate from the work of the pulpit and that it really is its own specialized discipline. I was talking to a professor at a major theological seminary who was, in, who was his specialty was systematic theology, and I asked him a question, tell me your views on the counseling that's taught at your seminary, and he said, I have no views, it's not my field, I'm a theologian. I don't think that's a good answer. I really, really don't. When I went through my graduate training at the University of Illinois, I was 21 when I began my graduate studies, and I was a naive kid, and I just assumed that becoming a psychologist was, was very similar to becoming a dentist. You learn how to uh, scientifically do certain things, and because I was a Christian, I do them ethically and morally, but what I did was going to be no different than what the secular person would do. When I went through my training, I began to become aware that what my training was teaching me were things that the Bible spoke to. There's an overlap. Every counseling model, every approach to counseling must be viewed not as a medical scientific specialty that makes we as pastors, you as pastors, feel incompetent. Jay Adams' book, I think, was terribly helpful, competent to counsel, when he basically said, look, if you know the scriptures, you've got the basis for intervening in people's lives adequately. I concur with Jay. We differ in a lot of things. I concur on that. I think that's a very important point. We must not regard counseling as somehow separate from the enterprise of learning the Scripture. Every counseling model has an anthropology, a view of people. They call it a personality theory, but it's an anthropology. Every counseling model has a homartiology, a view of, if not sin, at least what's wrong with people. Every counseling model has a pneumatology, a view of the personal forces going on that move people in one direction or another. And every counseling model has a, has a soteriology, how people can be rescued from their dilemma. Every counseling theory operates according to a theology of sanctification, what needs to be changed and how does it occur. When we evaluate the codependency model, we need to realize that we're not looking at a way of thinking that is morally neutral. There are things that we have to be very, very concerned with. I'm going to be giving three talks. The rest of tonight, what I want to do is to ask the question, as John already introduced, what's wrong with people today? What's going on in the lives of people? Tomorrow, my second talk, I want to talk about the codependency movement in particular. What is the codependency movement and what answers is it offering to people who are struggling with their problems? And then thirdly, in my last talk, I want to be talking about what I judge to be perhaps a critique of the codependency movement, raising some concerns about it, which I will be weaving throughout all of my comments, and provide some thoughts as to what might be a biblical alternative to dealing with the things that the codependency movement in fact addresses. What's wrong with people today? That's my topic for the rest of our time tonight. What's wrong with people? Now, it wouldn't be hard for me to tell a bunch of stories. All of us could get up and tell stories about people that are hurting, people that I counseled with last week that are struggling. 
But I'm going to go beyond that. I want to do more than say what every thoughtful, involved pastor is aware of, that people are hurting very badly. I want to go beyond saying the obvious things, that when you get into people's lives and you hear them tell their stories, you realize that how they look on Sunday morning is not how they feel the rest of the week. I want to go beyond the obvious and say that, um, and say more than the fact that when you look out in your congregation Sunday mornings and see couples sitting together, they probably just had a fight early that morning. It's very possible that they haven't had sex in four or five years. It's very possible that the women in your church have a history of sexual abuse because about 40% in our culture do, and a surprising number of men have a history of sexual abuse. I want to go beyond saying the obvious things that a fair percentage in your church are struggling with sexual perversions over which they have no sense of victory. I want to go beyond saying all those kinds of obvious things, and I want to talk about some trends in people's lives that I think are undergirding a mentality involved in many people sitting in our churches today. I see three trends. I want to talk about three trends for the rest of my time. There are three trends in modern thinking that are influencing people sitting under your preaching every Sunday. There are three trends in modern thinking that are reflected in the way people are operating and are generating their own unique sets of hurts beyond all the obvious things about dysfunctional backgrounds and sexual abuse and marital tensions and kids that are on drugs and all the rest of the things that our people are struggling with. I want to suggest that there are three ways of thinking, three trends in the way people are thinking today that you and I as Christian leaders and you particularly as pastors need to take into account as you preach. I want to suggest, by the way, that as I talk about the needs of people, as reflected in these three trends, I don't want to suggest for a minute that you need to change your preaching to accommodate felt need. Nor do I think that you need to, or that you should, continue on preaching with a happy disregard of the needs of people sitting in your audience. I talked with a pastor just a month ago. He's a 75-year-old man who pastored until he was about 45 and left the pastorate to enter academic, uh, the the academic world because he said that in my church, people wanted to come to me when I got off behind the pulpit and talked to me about their lives, and I had nothing to say. All I could give them were the tired old cliches that hadn't worked for me. I didn't know how to deal with my life, and I felt like a phony and a hypocrite, so I quit the pulpit and went to the lectern where students didn't expect me to know much about how to live. That's the way he put it. I don't want to suggest that we need to accommodate our preaching to felt need, but I also want to say that we need to take into account felt need, and maybe one of the tasks of preaching is to seek to change the awareness of people to move them from what they feel as need to what, in fact, their real needs are, and then speak to that. Now, that's a very different approach. What are the felt needs? What are people struggling with? And what are the thought patterns that are reflected in their felt needs? I want to suggest three trends. This is by no means meant to be exhaustive. We all have our ideas from our experience. This reflects my limited sphere of experience. But I'll tell you one thing I'm really convinced of. Things are different now than they were five years ago. There seems to be a movement that, frankly, is scaring me to death and driving me nuts. There seems to be a way of thinking, a way of approaching life that strikes me as very, very different than what I was contending with just five or maybe ten years ago. Something's going on. I don't know what it's all about. But it seems to me that maybe we can 
describe or at least get at whatever the differences are in our people sitting in the pews by talking about three trends. Trend number one. There must be a way to reduce the mystery of life to manageable categories. That's the first trend. There must be a way to reduce the mystery of life to manageable categories. I must find some way to regard the universe as an orderly arrangement that I can understand and find steps by which I can achieve whatever I want. I will go to my Bible if I'm a Christian, and I will look for biblical principles hoping that they are going to be the means by which I can order my life and get exactly what I want. There must be a way to reduce the mystery of life to manageable categories. I want to live in such a way where I don't have to radically depend on the goodness of God in order to make it. I want to be able to depend on some manageable approach to life that I'm guaranteed is going to result in certain things. Oswald Chambers has said that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not very good. I want to find some way to arrange my life. I want to find some way when my kids come into the world to know that if I do X, Y, and Z, that that puts God in a position of being obligated. So I don't have to be afraid of what might happen when my kids are teenagers. I want to, when I'm choosing a mate, I want to find some way of being led by the Lord so that I can choose a mate and live with her, live with him in such a way that there are never going to be really significant difficulties. I must find some way to, to, order, to order my life. 